Philippians 1 and read a few verses here, almost like a, again, almost like a hymn that either Paul wrote or he was quoting here as this response to this beautiful truths. There's a whole section of Colossians that is doctrinal where it's talking about several chapters, I mean two chapters of doctrine before it gets into the practical side of it. But it's just talking about how magnificent and wonderful God is and who Christ is as our creator and <clears throat> talking about Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight as we go into our communion service as well. Just focus on who Jesus Christ is once again. And then the communion is our time to be together as a church and remember that together and almost like communing with him in this moment together. And so um, Colossians 1, verse number, we'll, we'll go up to verse number 13, mostly focus on verse 15 and on though. But verse number 13, getting us into this, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood. And again, that's what we're going to be looking at tonight through the communion, is thanking Christ for his shed blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And then verse 15, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven, and that are in earth, visible and indivisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness, uh, please the Father that in Him, in Christ, should all the fullness dwell. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the, the beautiful doctrine of, the, uh, of, as we study Jesus Christ and His divinity, and as we know that we can rest in a, a man who was God, and our belief is in Your Son, Jesus Christ, who was not just one that ascended into Godhood, but that was God from eternity past and chose to become man for us. And that beautiful doctrine is what we celebrate tonight, what we almost in a somber way celebrate, remember and thank, uh, thank you for sending your son for us today. And so bless us tonight, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A few years ago when I was in the youth ministry, we had a t-shirt that had a fidget spinner on the front of it. That was when those little fidget spinners were popular. The little thing you hold in the middle and you spin it along the outside and it's made with ball bearings and it just spins and spins and spins through your hands. Well, they were very popular for about 10 minutes in our culture. Maybe, maybe 10 weeks. I don't know if that was, uh, uh, that was the case, but they were all over the youth department and just like one of those passing fads that came and went, then that was memorialized with our camp t-shirts. I wanted to emblazon it across their chest to help them remember one of the fads that had come through. And I used it as an illustration all the time of basically saying that with Jesus Christ at the center, which is the center hub, it's the center ball bearing, and then out from that center comes these three arms or these four arms, this circular motion that you'd spin around the center 
And from Jesus at the center, it affects everything that it touches. It affects our family and it affects the rest of our lives. One person put it together with this, with Jesus Christ at the center, the one that we always say yes to, then he affects our personal life testimony in Christ and the things that that revolves around. And then there's an aspect of our lives that's who we are as a church member. And with Jesus Christ as the center of our lives, it changes our, our mindset of being a church member. But it doesn't stop at church. It also affects, with Jesus Christ at the center of our lives, it affects our neighbor, being a good neighbor and a kind person to the people that you run into in everyday life. And, and the people you live next to, your literal neighbors and the figurative neighbors that you run into, just being a kind person and a good citizen that's an aspect of our lives that we have to live with Christ at the center. And then there's another aspect of our lives. If Christ is controlling everything in our lives, then it affects our home and our family and the way we raise our children and the way we relate with our spouse. And it affects everything about our home life and our family life. And then there's an aspect of our life that we spend so much time on, and that's our work or our occupation, the things that we do and spend our time uh, on And with Jesus Christ at the center, the book of Colossians talks about how, how Christ affects our job life, whether you're an employer or an employee and everything in between. It talks about with Jesus Christ at the center, he is the one that, that shades everything that we do. He's the one that controls everything that we do. And, and Colossians chapter 3, I like the way that it says it here in Colossians 3. Turn over a page and read this. Colossians 3, our lives are made up of being a good citizen and a good church member and keeping my life right with God, my own personal walk with Him, my family, my work, my occupation. But those are not my life. Verse 4, Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye appear with Him in glory. Skip down to verse number 24. Knowing this, that the Lord... Of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ, the controller Christ, the Lord of your life, Christ. Christ who is our life. That is the thing that we as Christians believe should be at the center of our lives. And we read, we read some doctrinal quotes here from the scriptures earlier where, where, yes, we were redeemed, we were bought out of a slave market, we were in bondage under slavery of sin, and Jesus Christ gave his blood for us and he redeemed us back to him. The choir song tonight was all about that. I am redeemed. I'm redeemed. Praise the Lord that he paid his own payment for my sin and he forgave me of my sin. Now look at verse number 15. Here's where it almost launches into this, just this beautiful doctrinal section about who this Jesus is that, <coughs> excuse me, that paid our redemption, that paid our price of salvation. This is, this is rhythmical. It has a lilt to it that's a little bit different than just a letter. So that's why I say it could be a quotation of an early church hymn or something that Paul wrote for this, but who is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of every creature. This God that we serve, this wonderful, this wonderful Jesus Christ that we've been preaching and promoting is, is the image of the invisible God. He's not just an image like you see on a coin, the image of somebody's face, but the actual, the actual representation, the actual manifestation of the invisible God. He is the one that becomes the, the, the God in your presence 
And the Bible says he is our, the firstborn of, uh, of every creature. Now, the Jehovah's Witness will take Jesus Christ and they'll diminish him to a mere human, one who was born, one who was created by God the Father. The Mormons will say that Heavenly Father was the first thing that he created, was Jesus Christ, and, or, or he's the, the spirit brother of Lucifer. And there's all kinds of doctrines that are out there that will diminish Jesus Christ to a mere human who, ha- who happened to ascend to Godhood. And yet that's not what the scripture teaches. <coughs> because if, if anybody teaches about a Jesus Christ, even though they carry the same name, who was a mere human, who is not deity through and through, who is not there from the beginning of creation, they're preaching another Jesus, even if they say the same name. This man, Jesus, is, no, is, is a completely different person than the Bible Jesus. The Muslims have a person they call Jesus, but he was just a prophet, he was just a kind person, He was just another one of a long string of prophets. And the Muslim's Jesus is not the same as the Christian Jesus of the Bible. Now, if you talk to a Mormon, they'll say, well, obviously the Muslim's Jesus is different, but yours and my my Jesus is the same. And you say, wait a minute, if you have a different Jesus for the Muslims, then how come you and I have the the same Jesus? What's our basis for disagreements? And they have to come back to the scriptures. And every time you take people back to the scriptures, you can take them straight to Colossians chapter 1 and say, your Jesus is not the same as my Jesus. Who you are promoting and even using the same name as Jesus is not the same person that I'm talking about. And Paul warned us about that in 2 Corinthians 11. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. It's so easy to understand. For he that cometh preacheth... I mean, for if he that cometh preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not received, ye might bear well with him. So Paul says there, is people, there are people who are going to use the name gospel and spirit and Jesus, and yet it's, a, it's another of a completely different kind. Don't be duped by the same language that's out there. We're talking about the deity of Jesus Christ, meaning that this same Jesus was in heaven at creation. He was involved in creation. He was not created. He was and is the creator. This this doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ is what separates orthodox, uh, traditional, biblical Christianity from all the new age, modern, liberal Christianity that's out there. The doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. The doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ works, somebody said, like a skeleton key that unlocks a lot of the rest of the Bible. That helps us understand the Old Testament in a new light and understand the New Testament in, a, in the correct light. And we say if Jesus Christ is God, if he is omnipotent and present right now, then that Jesus whom we serve and who is with us at all times, he can transform our life like nobody else can. Not a mere human who, like the Mormons teach, had eventually our Heavenly Father is just the God of our planet called Earth and he oversees this universe and yet he was just a man who eventually worked his way up to Godhood and he had spirit babies and populated the Earth and there's all kinds of universes all over the world like that. And and no, God was not just a mere human who worked his way up to Godhood. He was eternal God, and he says of himself, beside me, there's no other. There never has been. This is the hinge issue of Christianity, that God 
And, you, and Jesus Christ is uniquely God. And by God, he is the eternal, the unequal, the all-powerful, the all-knowing, omnipotent God, the Lord of creation, verse number 15 says. He is the image of the invisible God and firstborn of every creature. John 1 says, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Hebrews says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Those two verses say Jesus Christ is the very manifestation, the very image of God himself. He is God revealed to us where Paul says it right here. He's the, he's the image of the invisible God. And he says he's the firstborn of every creature. Again, this, this Mormon doctrine is not a new doctrine. It's been around since the early centuries. There was one man by the name of, I, I believe, Arius that taught that uh, Christ was a created being. And, and the early church fathers condemned his position in the early 300s. They said this is, this is this reference to his being firstborn. If we think of the Old Testament like the birthright, it was the most important son, the one who received the blessings, the one who is highest in importance as far as hierarchy is concerned. Jesus Christ is the firstborn, the most important son uh, uh, of God as the, as the eternal God. In verse number 16, here's where it goes into further proof of that concept. For by him, verse 16, were all things created that are in heaven. By him, by Jesus Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth and that are uh, visible and invisible whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things, all things, all things were created by him and for him. Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. He was not the created one who then created. It doesn't say anything like that. Jesus Christ is the creator, the one who speaks and from his mouth come, out of nothing comes something. Jesus said, that was me that created that. And everything visible and invisible, all the attributes of the earth, all the things you can understand and the things you can't understand, those were created by Jesus Christ. He was the creator. And not only by Jesus Christ, but they were created for Jesus Christ. It's like an art exhibit that is walking through these beautiful paintings and portraits and statues. And you can walk through and say, this is the room that this certain artist has put together. And all these paintings along the wall. My mom's always been a fan of Thomas Kincaid. And I grew to like Thomas Kincaid, the painter of light. Because there's just such objective beauty to his paintings that it's like I've walked through... I don't know if we had a, a, a store in the mall years back or some other mall. I remember an entire store dedicated to Thomas Kincaid. And when you walk through, you could, you could see all the, uh, the paintings, you know, however much they were, $30,000, $50,000. And you think, boy, if I could paint like this, maybe, maybe I'd be doing pretty good too. But the studio, the, the art exhibit was like an expression of Thomas Kincaid's abilities, and it was an expression of Thomas Kincaid's glory. It was his way of, of showing what he was capable of doing. And, and through oil and through paint that he could put on a canvas, it was like you were standing right there. Where it was like snow had just fallen. And there's this beautiful cottage with the lights burning on the inside. And it's like you're right there. And you look at that painting that Thomas Kincaid put together, and you think, this is an incredible painter. And the Bible says all of creation was created by him, by Jesus Christ, 
and for him. So that when you look at creation and you see the beauty of the handiwork of Jesus Christ, you think, boy, what a wonderful artist that is. What a beautiful creation that God has put together for us. What a wonderful way that he, has, that he has done this. And not only this, verse 17, he is before all things. He's eternal. And, and by him, all things consist. He's not only the one that created things, but it's not as if he created it and let it go and released it into the world to just be hands off from then on. But he created the world as a beautiful art gallery of his own creative ability to bring glory to himself. And and he was there from the beginning. And by him, all things consist. They, They have their consistency. They stay together because of him. He is the one who has his hand all throughout creation. Some people say, I'm not really sure why an atom stays together. If you, boil our, if you boil matter down, as far down as you can go, you'll find the atoms and you'll find the nucleus and all these uh, protons and neutrons there, but then the electrons are just kind of spinning around that nucleus, and we don't know why they decide to spin around the nucleus. Why don't they just shoot off into, into nothing? And you take an x-ray and you realize that most of us, I, I mean, the consistency that makes up most of us is just empty space. There's, you take an x-ray... All they're doing is shooting particles straight through your body. And the things that stick, I mean, the denser part of your body, they hit into that, they hit into that bone, but most of the things just go straight through you, and that's where your bones show up on the images. Because most of us are just, we're just empty space. And Jesus Christ says, I'm the one that holds you together. By me, all things consist. I'm the creator. I'm the one who stays with you. I'm the one that it has, has every right, has every right to be your Lord. It's not a big step to then name him as my Lord. I believe in Jesus Christ. I repented of my sins. I'm saved. But it's not a big step when you realize who Jesus Christ is, what he does for us, to then name him as Lord, the the master of my life. That's not a big step when you realize the theology and the doctrine of the divinity of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. Verse number 18, he's the head of the body. What right does he have to be the head of the body? How come he gets to call the shots? Well, because he's creator. And he's created us for him. We are his art gallery. The whole creation is his art gallery. And before him, uh, all things consist. He's the one that holds us together and continues to bless and help us. So he is the head of the body, the church. Who's the beginning? The firstborn from the dead. And there'll be a lot of Christians who have died and will be resurrected one day. Jesus was the first one who did that. The first one who rose from the dead, victorious over death itself. And through that victory, he conquered sin in the process. And those who are in Christ will then be raised with him, will be raised up just like he was. That's what being the firstborn from the dead means. That in all things, he might have preeminence. Not just prominence. Not just a big part of your life, but that Jesus Christ would be the only thing of your life. Not just prominence, like he's a big portion of my family's life or my work life or all these other aspects of my life that that Jesus Christ touches. But know that Christ has preeminence, the one who is forefront of everything in my life. That Jesus Christ is everything to me. I exist for him. I exist to please him. Creation depends on his existence. Uh, uh, creation uh, owns its existence in order to him, to his redemption. So he has the right to be the primary figure of his creation. 
He is the one who holds it together. And God says, verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in Him, in Jesus Christ, should all the fullness dwell. The fullness of all the Godhead, everything that God is, is in Jesus Christ. It's not that he was a mere human who worked his way to divinity. It's that divinity chose to set aside aspects of his divinity while in heaven to wrap flesh around his divinity where where he chose to lay down certain aspects of his supernatural powers and and he chose to become a man. God took flesh as, uh, 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 as being fully God. This is a doctrine, I'll just be honest with you, I still can't wrap my mind around it. I'd be a little suspicious of somebody that says, oh, I understand everything about that. Because I, I don't know that, that the eternal, immortal God coming to earth as a baby and being raised with human parents, I don't know if that really makes sense to anybody. And yet, Paul says, I mean, this is what we can understand from it. It pleased the Father, that in him should all the fullness dwell. It was pleasing to the Father that Jesus Christ was God on earth. The creator God chose to be a man to take our sins. And that statement is that all of the fullness of God is is present in Jesus Christ. And, And here's the only reason verse 20 is possible. That fullness is the only reason, verse 20, having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all unto himself. His blood was shed as a divinely perfect sacrifice for our sin. The Bible says we who were alienated from God, we who were separated, the enemies of Jesus Christ, because divinity came down to earth and sacrificed himself, like his own blood, his literal human blood flowed out of his human veins and down onto the ground. Because of that blood, that blood atonement, God says somehow in that fullness, I took that blood and put it on the mercy seat in heaven and covered the sins of the people once for all. And the blood atonement is only possible if Jesus Christ is God. If it were a mere human sacrifice, then he would be tainted by sin. So he is the substitute through his blood. His substitute uh, is, is the substitute for our sins. And what God does through that is two enemies. He reconciles them together, us and God, who are separated because of our sins. God says, I'll use my son's blood this one who in him dwells all the fullness. I'll, I'll, I'll use his blood to cover your sins and you and I can be close. You and I can be reconciled. We can be right together. The Bible says we can have peace, having made peace through the blood on his cross. This is not a feeling of peace. This is a relationship of peace. The peace that there exists no enmity anymore. And verse number 20, I say, whether they be things in heaven or things in earth, it expands then to this almost this cosmic peace that God wants to bring through the redemption in Jesus Christ. God wants to make his will known through Jesus Christ. He's the central figure of the New Testament. He's the central figure of creation and redemption. He's the one who died to restore God and man together through Jesus Christ, through his blood, through the sacrifice of our Savior on the cross. Paul recognizes this Jesus Christ that we serve. It's only through him that we have any right to even live. This all-encompassing view of the gospel of, of, of putting on our glasses 
with the lens of Jesus Christ now as God. That's the thing that drives the rest of our lives. I had my first eye exam in my life. I, I sit at a computer sometimes and my eyes will strain and, and I, I still have 20-20 vision. I can read small writing and all that kind of stuff. And, and the doctor was putting different lenses in front of my eyes. And one particular lens, I'd never seen it happen before, but she flicked one lens down over top of my eyes and some of this, a little bit of haze around some of the letters, all that just went away and it just became crystal clear just like that. I thought, wow, that's what it looks like when you wear glasses. It's amazing. And it's like that, that glasses that you wear where you're struggling a little bit to see and understand things. It's like the lens of Jesus Christ when you view Christ at the center of your life. It's when you put on glasses and it's like, whoa, this makes so much sense now. It affects everything. I go through the rest of my life with this, with this covering my eyes. I go through the rest of my life. If Jesus Christ is at the center, then it affects my relationship with my family. It affects my, my body and my work life and the things that I enjoy doing in my neighborhood. It affects everything. If Jesus Christ, if I always say yes to Jesus Christ, then the lens of Jesus Christ is across my eyes that I filter everything through just believing that Jesus Christ died for my sins and I live in a response of grace to him. Colossians is just a big book about getting Christ at the center of your life. And as a church, we'll meet together periodically to remind us of that through what we call the communion service or what the Bible calls the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. And it's a chance for us to I said earlier, almost a celebration of sorts, and yet it's a morbid thing to celebrate, that we're rejoicing in blood, rejoicing in death, rejoicing in the broken body of Jesus Christ, that his death is a wonderful thing to us. Why? Because of his blood making peace between us and God. And as a church, we meet together, and it's a corporate, it's not, it's not primarily an individual thing between you and God, but it's a corporate setting for a church to come together. And if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll march through some of the texts here, and then we'll have our deacons come forward, and we'll administer the Lord's Supper tonight. We're just doing exactly what Jesus Christ did on his last summer, on his last supper with his church there, the disciples that were gathered together with him. We see him instituting that in the Gospels, and we see the church practicing it there in Acts, and then we see, uh, uh, we see some instruction, some further instruction on how to do it, how not to do it here in the epistles. And these are the ordinances of the church. The baptism is one of the ordinances that that protects the front door of the church, so to speak. It, it, it keeps wrong doctrine out of the church. And the Lord's Supper is one of those things that God uses primarily inside the church for the body to come together and the family to come together and to purify from the inside what is already there, what exists in the membership. And so our church would be closed communion, meaning that, that we just take verses like, look in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 17. Now in this I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together, not for the better. But he is talking about an assembly of the church. I don't know if the original church there in Corinth had Robert's Rules of Orders. And we have to vote on membership and we have to say amen. And somebody has to say, do I have a first? Do I have a second? I don't know if they did that. I kind of doubt it. I don't know if they had such a strict membership role. But Paul just explains it like this. When you guys come together as a church. 
He says that in verse number 17, verse 18 too. First of all, when you come together in the church, it's not an invisible assembly, it's an actual assembly of people. The word church is assembly. Verse 20, when you come together, therefore, into one place. This is, this is not, a, not something to be administered at the side of a, a deathbed. This is not something that can be carried and transported all over the place. This is a church ordinance that is uh, meant to be assembled in one place. Well, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Despise ye the church of God, verse 22 says. Don't treat this like it's just anything else, but this is, this is a wonderful assembly time to look at what the church uh, uh, can do together, as seeing it, again, seeing it in Acts. And then, and then Jesus takes the bread, which represents the body of Jesus Christ, remembering Jesus Christ's sacrifice in the cup or the fruit of the vine, the fresh-squeezed grapes that went straight into the vine to represent. They don't turn into the blood of Jesus Christ. They don't literally turn into the body of Jesus Christ, as some, uh, as some religions teach. We're not cannibals here tonight. This is just a representation. This is a time for us to reflect on what Jesus Christ did for me. That deity came down to earth for me and gave his body for me and gave his blood for me. And so what we want to do, verse 33 says it again, when you come together to eat, tarry for one another. If any man hunger, take care of that at home, but don't come together unto condemnation, verse 34 says. And so look down at verse number 28. We want to do this as not a, not a, a come forward invitation time, but we're going to have a chance to do this in our chair as we read and think about what Jesus Christ did as sacrifice on the cross as we hear the story, this is verse number 28 says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Later on, he says, it's better if you examine yourselves, better than God having to examine you and judge you, and you have to suffer the chastisement of God. It's better that you just take a little time right now to repent of any known sin before partaking of this, because he says, you better not partake unworthily meaning harboring any sin that's in your heart. And so in that aspect, it is a personal, uh, a, a personal thing between you and God. But we're going to have a time of examination. I don't pretend that anybody has taken the time to do that this afternoon, so we want to do it corporately here in the church. And you can either kneel in your pew right there, the piano, if we can have the piano come, then the piano will play softly. Feel free to kneel if you would choose to or just sit there. If you would choose to, just like last time, I would like to read a portion of Matthew 27, and you can just be in an attitude of prayer.